I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to Align Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's beautiful episode, I had one of my preferred humans in the world, Mr. Kaj Larson. Um, Kaj has a super robust resume ranging from uh, at one point he was journalist for Vice News that's he might still be doing things with them actually um, he's been a correspondent for CNN he's been featured all over the place range from Huffington Post to ABC to NBC to just all over the place um, so beyond being a journalist he's got dang Navy SEAL um, and in this conversation we get into his stories of um, experiences in battle experiences in Hell Week experience doing um, journalism on on uh, a vast array of super interesting topics. So, hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Thanks so much for jumping onto the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge. Super simple, five videos breaking down fundamental movements that I think everybody has got to have in their day-to-day. And uh, you can jump on there, alignpodcast.com. Thanks so much to Cured Nutrition for supporting this podcast. I really dig those guys. They infuse CBD into all sorts of delicious herbs and spices and like uh, this delicious peanut butter bar thing that I find just incredible. Um, and they're great. They also have the, the standard oils and all that super high quality stuff. Uh, it's affordable. You can get yourself 10% off by going to Cured Nutrition. Dot com use align code for 10% off. Um, I think we're good to go. Thanks for using iTunes. Thanks for doing you. Um, I'm around some wind chimes. I wonder if you hear those guys. You probably do. Hope it's soothing and not annoying. Um, that's it. Here we go. Back to the podcast. Uh, the beginning of this conversation was kind of like warming each other up, you could say. That sounds kind of sexual. It's not how I mean it. Um, but it's kind of like bantery. And then in about 10 minutes in, we get into some, get in some good stuff. All right. Here we go. Align podcast. Somebody's on your book doc. Oh, yeah. This is a common occurrence for you. I, I, I mean, <laughs> look, I, not to interrupt. Like, you're you, about to get to a strong point. De- definitely, I wasn't. But look, you drive the train, but I will provide some information that this will happen about twenty times over the course of our podcast. All right, so, so like, we can get excited about it for sure. Time. I get excited every time. All right, uh, you build a goddamn book doc. A, a floating book exchange. Floating book exchange. Yeah. I had a lot of <laughs> debates within the family about what to call it because I really, you know, you got to be, you got to be, even if you're using an old school medium like this ancient bound thing with paper and black marks on it. That, it's old school. Yeah, yeah, that the uh, that the uh, the elder generation refers to as books. Even if you're building something that's an homage to books, um you have to kind of be sort of modern, sophisticated about it. So for people who are not sitting in my living room with us, I live on these two canals and I, I built this floating book exchange for the, for the canals community and people come and they give books and they take books and they read on the little bench. And it's, uh, but within my family, we had a big debate about, you know, how do we label this thing? Venice floating dock book exchange hashtag started to get pretty wordy at some point. There was no efficient way to describe this thing in our collective social media world. Right. So You got to the bottom of it. Sort of. Hashtag Venice Book Exchange. You're nailing it. 
it's still like pretty verbose, but you know, it's about books, so maybe it's good to be wordy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it. Before we were talking about the, uh, I feel like my, my audio is a little funny. Let me see here. I'm going to crank my shit up. Boom. Now I'm in there. Before we were talking about the, just the value of just taking action mm. and just making the damn book exchange. Like I, I wonder that with walking past things all the time, this is redundant because I was just saying this to you, but you know, we see things and we just expect that they just happen or we like, we wait for somebody else to do the thing. It's a cool little metaphor, a little like, well, for me, like a little life lesson, just like build the book exchange, like make, make stuff cool. Well, I think also in, in our modern age where like (laughs) there's lots of things in our, in our current environment that are dysfunctional. I would extend that statement to, to government and everything else. So it's incumbent upon those of us with a sense of community or a sense of values to, like you said, take action, just do something. At the end of the day, I think you and I both have this shared ethos of self-reliance, right? Um, other people aren't going to do it. Like, so sometimes you just got to do it and actually build something and use your hands. Another lost esoteric art of actually building something with your hands. Yeah. I was reading a thing, I'm reading this book called play right now and I'm doing a a chapter about play. And so I'm all enamored by it. One of the things in there was the value of uh, children using their hands, crafting and doing stuff with their hands that ends up being huge for their capacity for problem solving as adults. So it's like they're literally like neurologically integrating there. But like we do all this passive play, you know, stuff that we, we think of as being no ideal, but it's actually doing this deep work. You know, sometimes just those little things end up having large consequences. Yeah. And, and another shared value of ours is just this kind of mind body awareness, right? Yep. Like I think we all have this this healthy fear of, of being over digitized or that the next, the follow on generations are going to be so over digitized that they're going to lose some of these sort of skill sets and neurological connections, um, that we developed by being so analog. Uh, You and I are probably the last kind of generations that like were reared in an, a pre-digital world, right? Yeah. In an analog world. Like we know what a number two pencil is, right? And that's just not true. Uh, forever. I think it's, I think there's going to be a a stark contrast between like, I think it's going to be like the beatniks, which are the people like that still walk. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's opposed to getting like the non-burners, the non-burners. Yeah. (laughs) You know, or people that just like, like yeah, people that still just use their bodies. I think that we, it seems like we're going towards a direction of outsourcing all of that. And I have a feeling with the whole singularity and, you know, bionic, whatever there's, it, it seems to me, maybe it's already happened, but there's going to be like a distinct kind of why in the road of sorts. Yeah. A, a real cleavage. And while there are parts of me that want to make sure to raise alarm bells about that, like I also want to be open-minded to not being resistant to change and, you know, being too overly nostalgic about the way things were. I think this is like a classic mistake in, you know, um, revisionist thinking. Uh, And I remember reading, I think it was part of a book once um, that, and I think it was part of a book that was kind of argue, like both warning against the dangers of, of, of digitization in our lives. um, But also at the same time, like posted a conceit. Imagine if video games were built um, before books, right? And that, like, let's say video games were invented, you know, 
500, I, I forget when the Gutenberg printing press came about, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, something. Imagine that. Yeah, it was in, 1483, no big deal. Very. I'm just, I'm just joking. Yes. <laughs> no idea. Oh, I was so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> if this wasn't like if this would just float away into nothingness like a conversation <laughs> I would have stuck with that yeah, yeah. but you can track you can Fake it check the record so I can't do that I feel like if I thought hard about enough about it <laughs> I'm gonna guess 16 in the 1600s alright yeah for Me- Gutenberg yeah but. message in this isn't a live right. podcast but <laughs> <laughs> um, so imagine like they invented PlayStation instead of the printing press at, at that moment however many hundreds of years ago it was and kids grew up with this like networked idea where they were playing video games against each other and it was highly dynamic and they were communicating via the internet and they had multiplayer team games and all of this stuff and then you know fast forward 500 years later books were invented and parents would be like worried sick about their children they they would have support groups like oh my poor child they like do this weird thing where they like sit by themselves in a corner and they don't talk to any other children and all of that stuff and it's kind of like an interesting conceit right now yeah. i believe me i built a book exchange i believe in the value of reading and stuff but it means that i don't want to like totally dismiss the sort of cerebral power of new technologies and stuff like that. I just, like everything else, I want to be balanced about it. It seems like books, they have almost like this back-end hidden value of teaching you to to be okay with being with yourself, Mm. you know? Yeah, as this um, sort of like non-explicit benefit. Yeah. Totally, totally. And I think like to defend literature for a second and to defend reading yeah. is you almost had me like off the boat. Now yeah. I, I, I was, I was like, shit, you're right. Yeah. Books are terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> what are we thinking? Yeah. yeah. Would never punish my kid with this book thing. Right. <laughs> uh, no, but like, he, here's what I think books do do is I think they help you think in a very deep and focused way. Um, if you think about the ancient Greeks, they used to be able to memorize two and three hours of text at a time. So think about the richness and complexity of your ideas and your thought when you can recite two or three hours of text, right? And it's, uh, there's this great book, I think it's called In the Shallows by a, a, a guy named Hal something, and he talks about the cognitive effects of digital technology on your brain, the, mm. the, the neuroscience behind it. And, and one of the things that he says is that he he makes the analog that reading uh, is is a lot like REM cycle sleep, hmm. right? Um, so if you think about deep sleep, I think there's seven layers of REM cycle, and you have to you have to go through each cycle in order to get to that REM rapid eye movement where you're dreaming and the most deepest level of rest and sleep, right? And what happens if you, if you fall asleep and you're at level one and level two and level three, and then your phone rings and wakes you up, you don't pick back right back up at level three. You start back at one and have to work all the way through the order mm. to get the deepest level of, of sleep. And he says that that's a good parallel um, for focus and attention as well, that there's multiple layers of focus and attention, and you have to work through each one in order to get to that seventh level equivalent of focus and attention mm. and that seventh level is where a lot of deep creative well. thinking happens right and so we all read on our computers or our iPhones imagine you're reading and your your mind is starting to synthesize these really deep creative connections and you're at level two and level three and then boom 
like your text message pops up and you yeah. click over and text it or you get an Instagram notification, right? You boom, you're all you're popped out of that ladder um, in order to get to the deepest level. And what ends up happening is you can never really get to like that truly deep, creative, focused level of thought. And he says like when you peel away from something to check your email or check your text message, uh, there's a, he calls it like a switching cost, a neurological switching cost between switching back and forth from this great article that you're reading that's stimulating your thinking to some stupid email you have to respond to, right? And then there's a switching cost of going back, a neurological switching cost. And I think I certainly have had this experience. I think most people have. Um, it, Instagram is like perfectly designed for that kind of dopamine hit. You just oh, yeah. next, next, next. And so it creates then, hence the title of the book, In the Shallows, this level of thinking. He describes it as that you're skimming the ocean of knowledge with a thimble. Mm. Right? Just across the surface, but you never really go deep. Mm. Have you done Vipassana? No. It, I can't it's, tell if that is a, a South American It's a dish. dish. Yeah, you, it's a dish. It's okay. delicious. No, okay. it's not. No, it's, not. <laughs> it's a 10-day meditation, silent meditation thing. Wow. Uh, so Vipassana, you can do like Vipassana style meditation, which is its own style of meditation. Um, but traditionally, Vipassanas will be, you know, it's, it, the starting point at least is 10 days. You also did like 20-day and I think 30-day and different varieties of it. But that's something that I found it, with that experience was I didn't get to... Could, what was like conceivably what felt to be like real value until like day eight. Wow. <laughs> wow. So it was like torture, 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 and then enlightenment of some sort. I wouldn't go that far, but, and then, then, so, so this guy, SN Guenka is the guy that he kind of, he didn't find, found Vipassana. He, he bases it off of Siddhartha, like Buddha. Sure. Um, but he founded, he, he popularized it and brought it to the West and has this foundation and all that. Um, but he, towards the end there, there's these discourses and towards the end there, he talks about it being deep, uh, emotional psychological surgery, which is really fascinating. And so it's like, you're almost like preparing like when you go into surgery, you put on the, the gown and they clean you and they do the whole thing and they, you know, you sign the insurance, but there's all this bullshit. Right. And they're like, okay, cool. The scalpel's going in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, I don't think that that's an analogy he really uses, but that's what he calls it. It's like, okay, like day eight, day nine, we're like deep, deep psychological surgery is how he talks. Wow. It's pretty cool. Wow. But it um, takes that, that, that time, that cushion. Yeah. I, I look, I don't, I don't want to say I couldn't do it. I feel like <laughs> I could do anything. I, I feel like I recognize those first six or seven days would also be torturous for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. For a lot of people, it's like, so a lot of people quit on day two and then day six or seven, I think, oddly enough. There's like, no, day six. And if you make it past day six, it's like, you're going to stick around. But day two, after and, after and day one, people are like, screw this. And then after day six, I think it starts to potentially start to kind of unfurl some layers, you know, that's a little bit like, oh, well, I'm like starting to feel funny. And then people will duck out then oftentimes, right. but there's like much sort longer of right ones. on the precipice of the, some kind of breakthrough. The, the, yeah. Right. The yeah. There's a quote that. from Rumi, uh, call, call, he says something like the, the cure for the pain is in the pain, you know? So if you can sit with yourself, you know, or feel into like, Oh, I have this uncomfortable, like we have so many mediums to divert ourselves away from ourselves and you jump into the notifications, like boom, back at it. You're back into that. Yeah. You know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. 
I read a lot of Rumi when I was in Afghanistan. Yeah, I just know that. I just know, know that yeah. quote. That's yeah. <laughs> that Rumi quoted the Gutenberg printing press. <laughs> That's. 1483. Bring, bring those party tricks out. <laughs> dude, so what's your story, man? You're a pretty fascinating layer, layered dude. You got a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah. I, I, I like to say, I don't know if this is uh, an excuse for not being totally focused um, or not being unidimensional, but like I, I like to say I like to pursue the lost art of being a renaissance man. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like you're actually doing that as opposed to like people that's, I was looking at somebody's Instagram thing recently and they said spiritual leader yeah. in the thing and I'm just like, oh. yeah. <laughs> So one thing, I don't know if it's good or bad about me, but it, it just is, it just exists in the world, you know, yeah. um, is that, you know, I grew up in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah. A real like hub of alternative thinking and, and counterculture um, activity and you know I have friends right now up at at Esalen which is this amazing you know retreat in Big Sur which is forever like you know sparked a lot of genesis of like vanguard thinking and stuff so I and my parents I won't say hippies because I once called my mom a hippie on national TV and she wake out oh my god she went crazy <laughs> we had such a big fight like we talk a lot like we're very close <laughs> and like she literally didn't talk to me for like two weeks and wow. then eventually like ended up like when we had our breakthrough you know we had our silent meditation of two weeks Good. and then our breakthrough moment was where she goes uh i was like mom like you don't understand like i was using it as shorthand she doesn't like that hippie, hippies have been castigated in, in yeah. the media and in pop culture and stuff and i was like like just what do you want me to say like i don't have time to give like your two-hour dissertation about you know being a revolutionary right and, she, she made her own kombucha and made me socks yeah, I mean, she was at woodstock right. like i mean she's pretty like we were grew up in santa cruz like my name is kaj my sister's name is jeva right That's there good. was two rivers a moonbeam and a star on our block do like, you guys do like kirtans and stuff i don't don't even know what they are. So Hari, Hari Krishna, Krishna. Hari, oh, Hari, no, no, stuff. but there is a Hari Krishna element like in our family. Like yeah. this woman uh, who's like a cousin, now Davashasti, like that that exists, right? That kind of thing. Yeah, cool. um, anyways, at one point when my mom and I finally reconciled, she, you know, she goes like, listen, I'm not a hippie, damn it, I'm counterculture. And I was like, That's okay, good. Well, now you know. Yeah, now I That's know. That's good. For the like, record, you if, if your mother's listening, yep. we acknowledge your yeah. counterculture. <laughs> and she is. Yeah. And she is. And she's, um, and that is that is definitely like one of the most beautiful aspects of her is that she refuses to accept the world as it is, like constantly questioning. How does she feel about you being a Navy SEAL? Oh, You got damn Navy SEAL, Kaj. Hoo ya. Hoo ya. Hoo ya. Those are my helmets. You I, do I, like real shit. I don't do, I go to yoga, I go to hot yoga. That's like my the extent. I used to climb low grade mountains. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, a couple of these hot yoga classes, I have felt like ringing that bell. I know? sat with myself for yeah. 10 days once. Yeah, well, it is funny that I did like, when you were describing it, I was thinking about the process of Hell Week and I was thinking about, uh, so Hell Week is some the fit that somewhere between the third and the fifth week of seal training and the first phase of seal training which is the hardest phase where lots of people quit and most people quit during hell week um and it's generally considered the hardest week of the hardest military training in the world uh and the vast right. majority of people also quit on the second day something yep. about the adrenaline gets you through the first night and the first day um i think it's just smart 
if you quit on the second day, you're like, okay, I got a taste of that. Like, I know I'm not going to finish. Yeah, go out, go out. It early. seems to be. It seems to be sensible. Yeah, although, and then again, there's people who quit like, you know, closer to the finish don't line. Don't quit on the. Like, yeah, if you're no. like nine tenths through, don't do that. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So um, there is some parallel there, but. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I keep, I keep feeling like I want to point out visual references, which is like, must be the TV guy in me, like not yeah, the right. podcast guy. But like, yeah, those are my helmets over there from SEAL training. Each one represents a different phase of training. That green one huh. represents first phase physical conditioning. The blue one represents dive phase or second phase. And then the third one is land warfare. That's the final phase of, of basic underwater demolition seal training. So are those like trophies or symbols or you're no, actually wearing the helmets? No, no, you wear the helmets. Why they, are you wearing the helmets? They you, look like old school. It looks it, like Civil War stuff. I mean, like, look, a lot of SEAL training is old school, but wow. you, you wear them when you run around. So, like, people in your class, you can be identified. Like, oh, there's the first fa- the class that's in first phase. Um, cool. So there's a group of, you know, starts off big. Like, my class started off with 246 guys. So you got 246 guys, you know, running around wearing those helmets in formation. Um, and, then, and then it switches over. The helmet, like anything else, becomes a device. Um, it's not to battle protect you like we could go you know gear geek out in the garage and i could show you ballistic helmets that you wear operationally uh these are more ceremonial you have to paint them you can see the stripe on them indicating that i'm an officer and sometimes the instructors to fuck with you will like grab the helmet off your head smash it which means that you're going to be up all night painting the helmet like you know so instead of getting your you know two or three hours of sleep that you'd hope to get you'll get zero hours and have a fresh painted helmet What's what's Hell Week consist of? Hell Week consists of uh, multiple nights between, uh, you know, five and seven nights um, without sleep. You only sleep probably on total, I don't know the numbers, four or five hours over the course of that week. Uh, wow. The very first night is... What does that divide into nightly? So it's or is not it just nightly. like you're taking naps? Yeah, they'll give you like a two-hour nap or something. Wow. I think according to, to Bud's lore, but I think there's science behind this, um, sometime after 72 hours, you start to get into a place that's cerebrally dangerous without sleeping. And so they have like these mandatory rest periods where they'll like let you nap for an hour to kind of reset that clock. But, <laughs> you know, by the end, by like day five, like you're totally hallucinating. Yeah. You, know, like I, you mentioned REM sleep. If your brain goes, if you don't get REM sleep for long enough, it will start to, to catch up while you're awake exactly. and you'll be driving your car and all of a sudden see like gypsies running over your, you know, your hood. Is that your hallucination of That's of my go-to. <laughs> <laughs> That's my go It was a story about your mom being counterculture or something yeah. like, like gypsy. <laughs> You see Kaji's mom jumping on your head. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't want to be too PC. In fact, I don't want to be PC at all. But apparently Gypsy is also not politically correct. Oh, right. It's, I apologize. It's the Roma people. The Roma people. Of which oh, right. I saw many when I yeah. was in Romania. Yeah, right. Um, but you know what I wanted to circle back to? Because I think it's like it's one of the reasons I enjoy our conversation so much. But um, is there's this growing up in Santa Cruz, I'm hyper sensitive to the distinction between like new ideas and new age thinking. There's a lot of like soft thinking in the kind of new age community. And you see it, whether you're in Santa Cruz, whether you're in, in Venice. And like, I think because I grew up around it, I'm not, uh, I'm particularly acerbic 
to mm. it, right? What I am, I, I like people who are pushing the boundaries of ideas and thinking, um, but I also see like when it goes like in a different direction and I'm like, like, come on, like, yeah. come on, you know, the kind of overheard in LA kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? I'm a little bit jealous of people like you that have had the opportunity or, or made the choice to do hard things like that and put yourself in an organized situation where it's like, I, I've never, I mean, I've done like some raves and stuff like that where I was up for a while, but I've never, you know, I've, like I said, I used to be into like mountaineering and rock climbing and stuff like that, but nothing to the same degree. Yeah. Well, it's hard to put yourself through that. Yeah. It has to be in pursuit of a, a larger purpose, right? Or else like, at some point, like rational thinking and behavior takes over and you're like, wait, why am I doing this? Like, I just ran like 40 miles with like boats and logs. Like, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't good for me. Right. They say this again is, you know, Bud's mythology. Like, but, you know, they say Hell Week takes like four years off your life or whatever. Right. Like, <laughs> there's no reason to actually do that unless you have like some larger mission in mind. Yeah. But then it probably enriches the next 80 like many things in life, like there are things, yeah, that we, we pay our dues now. And, uh, I, I'm always thinking about this distinction between, you know, life quantitatively, how many years did you live? Like did yeah. you live to 110 or, you know, what medicine is starting to awaken to these, this idea of total quality life years. Like what is it, what is the quality of your life during whatever time you're on this, you know, small blue planet? Yeah. It's amazing. All the things like, you know, how many things have you done where you, you look back and you're like, Oh man, I wish I did that 10 years ago. Yeah. Totally changed my whole perception. I I was a total asshole for the last, yeah. you know, 30 years. Yeah. And then that happened. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's interesting. Like what's, what's in the, you know, in the future to come where I'm like, oh, I'm definitely for, not thinking right now. I'm sure for me, those are usually things like, you know, my, my crazy friend Brock, who was like telling me to invest in this Bitcoin thing oh, 10 dude. years ago. And I was like, Brock, like, like, this is nuts. Like I'm, I, I'm not putting my hard earned money into this right. <laughs> crazy thing that you could barely explain to me. You know, did like, you do it? What? No, I didn't do it. Like I'm a super conservative investor, and yeah, but Brock put a hundred grand in. Oh, good. Turned it into four billion dollars. Whoa! Yeah, Brock. Go Brock. Damn. You rock, Brock. Four billion. And then it got cut down to two billion in the last whatever. Yeah, yeah, but like they're you know, poor guy. Jeez. So his his home's right down the canal. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Brock. We could row the the boat. We should row down to Brock, but then it'd be a date. That's your move. Yeah. I know know your (laughs) intentions if you take me in the in the in the rowboat. Yeah. yeah. So you got. So you were doing. How long are you? You're once a Navy SEAL, always Navy SEAL, I guess. Yeah. Are you like active duty? Can you be like called upon? I I am off of active duty and I, until very recently, uh, stayed in the SEAL reserves, which a lot of people aren't aware that um, there are SEAL reserve units, but they are. They're they're relatively new. Um, They became important as guys were getting out circa 2007, 2008. 2009, there was kind of a brain drain in the SEAL teams of guys getting out, putting their skills to use in the private sector. Um, So the leadership, uh, specifically a guy named Admiral Olson, really kicked off this idea of what he called SEAL for life. Um, Mm -hmm. And he wanted to make sure he, he, he drew a circle around and was able to capture like all of these guys that we had invested 
all of this money and training sure. into and could still retain some value from them for the community. What's it cost? What's uh, the, I know, that, I know there is a cost. I've heard know, it. I should, I've heard $2 million. Like, Damn. But I should be, I should drill down on that. Um, I don't want to be quoted on, on too crazy, well, but it's, it's definitely seven figures, but I don't know what, what exactly it is, but Whoa. it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of time. There are very few seals. There are very few like active trigger puller seals. They're very, they're even less seal reservists. Um, so my story is, yeah, I, I did, um, I got off active duty in 05 and then I went to graduate school, uh, where I was completely out. But in 07, I came, I wanted just I needed a break from military affiliation, uh, but in 07 I came back into the reserve community, uh, and then I've been because the demand is so high for uh, for seals um, because the operational tempo overseas. I've been kind of jumping back and forth across the line uh, between my civilian work and and my military work. So yeah. I'll have to go back and uh, go to Africa and, and do it, some work. Is there a tangible f- characteristic? that you feel or, or, or sensation that you feel like you've gathered from, from doing SEAL training and all that, that somebody like, you know, me hasn't been able to access or hasn't access. I mean, it's weird when I, when I, I relate it like to me specifically, but just like, is there something that stands out of like before I did that versus after I did that change of perception of things? Well, in, I, in general, I think there's a tremendous amount, like being a SEAL is the seminal experience of my life and it defines a lot of who I am and how I operate in the world. Hmm. I think there are analogs to being a SEAL all throughout the civilian world and there are ways to capture um, a, a lot of the intrinsic value of both our training and my overseas experience through different experiences. There's, um, you know, whether that's the camaraderie of, of being on a sports team together or climbing a mountain together, um, like that brotherhood. Uh, I think you can, I think you can emulate and replicate in the civilian world. I think there's a lot of really positive things, uh, that you can do in terms of being mission oriented, in terms of leadership principles that come from the civilian world that are applicable, um, or that come from the SEAL community that are applicable in the civilian world. I would say, so I think there's a lot of positive flow between that kind of Maginot line of of military, the civil military divide. Um, There are probably some things that you wouldn't want to have from my experience of being a SEAL. You know, uh, June 28th, 2005, like buried 11 friends who were killed in Afghanistan. Um, you know, uh, the extortion 17 mission had multiple friends on for, for a guy my age, I just turned uh, 40. Like, you know, I've probably like carried too many coffins and I've been to too many friends funerals. Like we, because we have been so, uh, aggressive and the operational tempo has been so high over the last, over the two longest wars in American history. Um, I, I feel, I don't have empirical data to back this up, but I feel like I have been disproportionately exposed to death and injury of many of my friends um, that there isn't really a civilian analog for that outside of some like incredibly tragic circumstance. Hmm. You seem so lighthearted. Well, yes, I I think lighthearted is a good way to go through life. I, (laughs) I, I think, look, I've, I don't know that I can articulate this well, but I, I feel it deeply. I think it's po- a lot of my, f- 
friends have suffered and a lot of military personnel have suffered in their civilian transitions. Um, they had really tough times overseas and like, look, I had tough times overseas. I think it's also possible to, we all know about PTSD, post-traumatic stress yeah. uh, disorder. Um, Get it from big wave surfing too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe that. Well, originally... There's like a come down off of it. A lot of people will experience like this like depression after doing like surfing payout here or something amazing. like that. Amazing. Uh, well, I mean, originally like PTS comes from, I believe, from uh, domestic violence survivors, right? So yeah, it's essentially that. a way... It's the way your body deals with trauma, right? Psychologically deals with trauma, right? And so it may be magnified in a, in a combat setting. But I think conversely that it's also possible to grow from your combat experiences. And I think I, I learned a ton from my time overseas. And, and I came back and I had a, a really beautiful transition as I was able to go to graduate school at a, a, like an amazing institution. And I think that kind of exposure is the best kind of soft landing um, from your active duty time. It also has the added benefit of increasing your social networks. I've been able to do a lot of work in veterans philanthropy that uh, allows me not just to continue to serve in uniform when I'm overseas um, as a reservist or mobilized to active duty, but also continue to serve my community and my community of veterans. And I think that gives me a sense of purpose and mission that's helped me um, remain positive and buoyant. And then, like, frankly, like, just like a little bit of perspective, right? Like, yeah. I'm not sure I should have lived past 35, right. but like I'm here. It's the extra credit, man. Right. It's all in You're the black. It. I'm all in the black, right? <laughs> it's all a dream. Yeah. Like, it's all bonus. <laughs> it's all bonus time at this point, right? Like, I've had parachutes not open, right? Like, things blow up, helicopters crash, right? You've been in the helicopter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I've been in two helicopter incidents. Yeah. Can you, what, what the hell happened? Uh, one of them <laughs> was an incident in training where uh, a guy, I don't know, if, is Mike still active duty? Anyways, I, I won't say his last name, but his name's Mike. And this guy, Mike, uh, was, we were doing this thing called Helocast and Recovery. And it's basically a methodology of picking combat swimmers up out of the water quickly with a helo, uh, with a helicopter. So the helicopter drags um, this caving ladder behind it at at 10 miles an hour and, and 10 knots. Um, and then your swimmers are in the water in a line and you hook the helicopter and then climb up into it so that you could pick up a bunch of seals from from a, a maritime mission. And uh, we were doing this and um, I remember like climbing up uh, into the ladder and this guy, Mike, um, uh, was at the base and he had just hooked the ladder and I was right next to uh, another a uh, frogman buddy of mine, another officer who's like my best friend through training. And he was looking down at the ladder and all of a sudden there's this noise, like, like the noise you never want to hear in a helicopter. No. And in a helicopter, like noise is life. Uh, I mean, air uh, altitude is life because you can auto rotate. So the pilot like rams on the collective. It shoots up. What does like, collective mean? The collective is the, it's kind of like the, the joystick that they use to fly the helicopter. Oh, okay. It's not the actual steering mechanism, but I think it changes the tilt of the rotor blades and stuff yeah. um, and changes the pitch. So they like, they fly up on the collective. So the helicopter goes like from 10 feet off the ground to 300 feet in the air over the Coronado bridge with Mike Gall, like hanging from the bottom of the ladder. Wow. Swinging. Wow. Yeah. Like out of a action hero movie. 
Uh, yeah. So anyways, I was in an incident like that. I was in another incident where a 60 was landing on a helicopter and, and fell short um, and, and landed in the water. Uh, landed being <laughs> the loose definition of landed. Smashed into the water. Uh, yeah, those those birds fl- fall out of the air, man. They fall out of the air. Yeah. I barely understand the aerodynamics of how they fly anyway. So. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's a weird... It's complex stuff. Original planes were supposed to... We tried flapping them, I think. Oh, you mean like <laughs> like Wright Brothers, North Carolina yeah. to uh, emulate yeah. nature? Yeah, yeah, It's a natural first approach. That that's makes what sense. That's you think. The Wright Brothers were bike mechanics, right? I, th- I think that's right. It's kind of an interesting thing. I was reading something of, of the, the value of... It's kind of like divergent thinking. Like by you approaching a problem, not being like an expert at it, in some senses, you actually have a higher likelihood of, of coming up with new new insights that haven't been done before because you're like, you don't, you're not in the dogma. It's kind of well, interesting. To, to come full circle to the conversation uh, about being a Renaissance man, this is like part of my you know, philosophical underpinning of this approach to life is that I think there's incredible value of being a subject matter expert and having domain expertise. And I think what that allows you to do within that silo of information in your lane is you make what we call technical innovation. Like um, if you are the world's foremost scholar on, I don't know, like metallurgy right like you can continue to like gradually make improvements like over time because you have this new material and stuff but i feel like that like transformative innovation like real quantum leaps in progress quite often come from like a a mashup of of two different domains coming together and borrowing the best practices and principles from one domain and combining it with ideas from another domain. That's when you get like in a primordial soup metaphor, a collision of these atoms and like big, big ideas Hmm. happen. Um, And I, and I like that. I like that personally, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, you know, when I can use my expertise in, you know, national security and then like, think about all the work and research that I've done in the criminal justice world and then cross-pollinate like those principles together to come up with something new that advances one of the, the mediums. Yeah. Buddies, Hunter, Hunter Matz and Brian Kelly called idea sex. Yeah. Well, that, that is, <laughs> what? I, I, take you, these two you, ideas out in the, out in the rowboat and yeah. <laughs> take it down. You, you just let me go on that long <laughs> soliloquy when we could have just had idea sex. Idea yeah. sex. Yeah. It's a real thing. New, it's like I, new it's spawn cool. comes out of that. Totally. Can you talk a bit about, uh, did you experience PTSD? Would you say that that's like a tangible, like, yeah, that was a thing? Uh, I, I don't know. I think no. Yeah, right. All those My things have been no. blurry. Yeah, no. I like look. I I think I'm okay. And there's there's a lot of interesting science. You know, two people can have the identical combat experiences. Can be sitting right next to each other in the Humvee. You know, go through an ambush, like go through an IED, whatever. And one person can come out like absolutely fine and adjusted and transition to life in the civilian world. Mm. And the other person, and I say person purposefully in this case, man, woman, right? There's a lot of women on the on the front lines these days, um, can come out totally fucked up and fucked up for life, right? And they come back and they self-medicate and, and they do all, um, all of these, you know, all these negative behaviors, right? And so what that suggests is that there is some 
that it's not necessarily really about the experience, that there's some latent resiliency and capacity, different varying levels of capacity for resiliency built into human beings. And one of the, the questions that people at the forefront of this, these kind of research questions are, are asking is, um, can we build resiliency? You know, is it, uh, how can we arm people with resiliency as body armor before they have these traumatic experiences downrange and overseas. Um, there's some fascinating new stuff coming out about yeah, it. Yeah, attunement at a, uh, at a young age is a big thing. So a mother like really connecting and attuning with the child. Also, uh, contact is a big thing. So there's like studies around uh, rat pups and the the uh, amount of whatever the grooming or licking, whatever that's, whatever that there's a term for that, right? When the like licking the pup. Right. You know what I'm talking about. It was contact. Right. You know, so that like taking care and that, that actually having that physical expression of love and care. I'm like massaging a pillow right now. (laughs) Um, it's creepy. Um, you know, but that's shown to make those, those rat pups and humans. Um, but in the studies, rat pups, uh, more well adapted and, and more. So when stressful situations happen, they're like, okay, cool. Like I've, I have this insulation. Yeah. Whereas if you grow up kind of dry, then, you know, you're closer to the bone. And I completely believe that. And I could probably like draw a bunch of like anecdotal examples from, from people I know. Right. And quite often, you know, sort of paradoxically, sometimes the same situations that drive people into the military are not necessarily like the familial background situations that would be most supportive of having created like a resilient self. Yeah. I was was hearing that as I was saying that. I was like, I bet you that's not always true in that situation. Right. And there's all these, these old, you know, cliches, you know, in World War II era where it's like, well, son, you can go to jail or you can enlist. Right. You know? And so they, they end up enlisting from a pragmatic perspective. Um, because from a, from a DOD outlook, you know, they can't go back and, and really change people's childhood. Some of the the very practical measures that they're looking at are uh, one, being able to identify and to be able to classify whether people have that initial Mm. resiliency or some kind of innate resiliency built in. And then secondly, there's some evidence that pre-exposure to traumatic events actually helps your mind cognitively um, build defense mechanisms against more severe trauma. Right. So it's like a muscle. Exactly. Train it beforehand. Right. So if it feels to me like, like a combination of, of as a rat pup, you were licked and cared for yeah. and you've been exposed to some shit in like titrates, you know, yes. like enough that you're able to actually assimilate. Yeah. I, that's, and it's a hundred percent true. And while I'm saying it out loud, I feel like sort of morally responsible to also say that, that the, I think we want to build super soldiers, right? But war is hell. And like what happens in war is horrible. And there's a reason that people have PTS, post-traumatic stress, right? Is because, you know, human beings psychologically and biologically like are not designed to, to kill and to see other human beings killed, dismembered, you know, mutilated, whatever. Um, So we could provide all of the um, prophylaxis in the world, right? But ultimately, like, it's the policy of conducting war that is really what's breaking people. And, um, and look, I'm, 
I'm not a peacenik, obviously, <laughs> right? It goes uh, without saying, but I do, as as someone who has deployed overseas, um, I think there's a reason that warriors are the most reluctant to go to war, and it's because we understand the consequences of it. Hmm. Yeah. Why do we go to war if it's not... It's interesting when we say things like... like you know, whatever, artificial flavors, it's not natural, or like this technology, it's not natural. It's like, well, we fucking made it, so it's natural. Yeah. Oh, well, this is kind of my whole thing about, like, new age thinking, right? Like, now we're off the war topic. Like, this is my whole, like, thing about new age thinking, like, uh, and my uh, my sister's a, um, my sister's a, uh, a doctor, amazing little doctor, and little because she's small unlike us yeah. she's small and she, she always gets mad when she's, she's like gosh all your friends are so tall like <laughs> she would hate to meet you you would fall right in with my tall group of friends oh, you know? good. Um, good. and you know she's always <laughs> another saying, one yeah well there's always these things like where people are like making this thing like oh well it's it's natural right and you know so therefore it's organic and she's like Look, like, I will walk you into the forest and show you some mushrooms that will kill you within, like, two and a half seconds. Totally organic, totally natural. Like, she's a toxicologist also. Like, you know, toxins don't care whether they were organically or synthetically made. Like, bad for the body is still bad for the body. And this is when I talk about kind of the softness of new age thinking. Sometimes I feel like in communities like Venice and Santa Cruz and stuff, people, like, really fall into that trap, you know? Yeah. Um, I like that you didn't label Santa Monica, which is where I live. I'm like outside of all that. Oh, dude. <laughs> you're, you're so vanilla. So, you're so vanilla up north there in Santa Monica. It's like, true. <laughs> it's true. So I think about that sometimes of, of like, is war an, a, a natural part of being a human or is it some aberration mutation? Like, is it inherent in, in like, the, the health of, of humanity yeah. for us to fucking kill each other? It's, it's probably, like, the biggest, like, one of the, like, bigger sort of philosophical rifts between my mom and myself. My mom is, like, an outright pacifist, and she believes that violence is never, like, justified uh, by any means. I tend to think more um, that uh, war or conflict or violence to some degree is is inevitable and it's part of the nature of uh, of of being a human and I would sort of cite like lots of anthropological evidence right I think if Chris Ryan were here he would be able to talk a lot about like you know warring factions in early humans and yeah. stuff and there's a, a lot of evidence of that that kind of conflict um, but yeah I don't know, man. It, I'll tell you, as a veteran of the, you know, two longest wars in American history, like it certainly seems pretty damn inevitable, and in that like we haven't we haven't evolved. Like you know, the mechanisms have have evolved. Like the, um, you know, the reasons are different, right? But you know, World War Two was was it World War Two or was World War One? Like they all start to blur, right? Like the war to end all wars, right? Yeah, right. And like that shit hasn't happened. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it feels like a downer, but I, 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 whether whether war is inevitable or not, I do think we have to live in a world where um, violence uh, and conflict exists. So we have to figure out like what are the what are the 
the mores and and what are the the boundaries around those two subjects. If Chris were here, he might say something along the lines of of property being like a one of I don't know what he would actually say, but I mean I I feel like I've heard him talk about this yeah. this subject, but that that would be a, a likely response. You know, if we, if we, if we truly shared everything and, you know, in like sex at dawn perspective, like including like each other, yeah. um, then there's not, it's like, I don't want you to blow up my land or kill my sister or something like that because like it's she's your sister too. And we're, we, we share all this once it's like, well, this is mine. Then all of a sudden it creates this interesting, com- but then the question is, where does this is mine come from? Right. And also like, and less so money, but like. You know, if I mean, Chris uses, you know, the animal model and the bonobo model quite a bit as um, a catalyst for understanding like our our modern behaviors and stuff. And like, look, like there's violence in bonobo society, Mm -hmm. less so than chimpanzee. um, But it's it's violent and there's a different kind of violence. And like in some ways, like violence is a part of nature. If you uh, you you watch animals hunt each other, like that is inherently violent act you know even uh i don't know i was i was free diving for lobsters the other day and like it requires violence and aggression to take another being's life no matter what Hmm. whether that's a human to human or or human to animal or animal to animal so i do think there is some intrinsic nature in terms of violence and aggression um but then there's probably like a whole social construct around it. Um, I tend to ask questions about motivations for violence and and questions like who wins and who loses, things like that. Right. Yeah. So what's... uh, As a way of unpacking um, what's happening. So I don't know if if we can stop violence completely. And just to be like perfectly clear, like I believe there are times when force is required to do good in the world. Yeah, I get that. I live in, you know, I don't know that I live in perpetual fear, but I never want to be thought of as the good man who does nothing. Right. Sort of that passivity that we talked about before. Um, you know, like if there's there's something wrong, uh, I want to I wanna attack it and fix it as a problem. The classic international relations example that I use is um, the Rwandan genocide. Uh, where the um, the Hutu power structure murdered approximately 800,000 people in somewhat under three months, mostly by machete, frankly. One of the mechanisms for launching Hutu power during the Rwandan genocide. And Bill Clinton, by the way, if you if you ever if you ever talk to to Bill or um, uh, or you know considers this one of his like regrets from his presidency that they didn't intervene or intercede sooner in Mm. the Rwandan genocide. They watched it happen. There's lots of reasons for that going back to Somalia and and all of this other stuff. Uh, But um, he considers that a failure of his administration. It would have been really simple to send like a team of missions are never simple, but so erase that. It would have been possible, right, uh, to send a, a group of guys like me and a group of pipe hitters to go in and take out the radio towers that were used to broadcast um, all the messages from the Hutu power structure. Uh, that was the real mechanism for inciting violence. That's a very tactical, surgical approach to um, 
and look, it may not have stopped the genocide, but it certainly would have like slowed its progress. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, there there are places in the world where um, I think kinetic action has to happen. If as you're in that situation, and we can we can wrap up soonish. You, you got to be out of here at a, a specific whatever. We've been going for. I'm cool. You, whatever whatever serves you. Yeah. I just got to prep for. Speaking of killing things. Uh, yeah. Speaking of man on animal violence. <laughs> About I'm to kill some shit. for uh, a big spearfishing trip this weekend. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'd be interested the, cause that's such a rare experience to be, I don't know what a pipe hitter is exactly. I'd love to hear what that is. But if you are called on to that mission, if that's what, what the term would be, um, what's like your mindset upon getting that call? If it is a call or message or whatever, um, leading up into that being in the, plane or whatever the hell is you're going over there you in that a little bit yeah sure um well so one one thing that i should uh like like maybe a not super well-known distinction distinction about the seal community um and it's a subtlety but i think it's an important subtlety is that the seal community is comprised like all of the military of officers and enlisted uh guys so the officers are kind of the the leadership class an analogy might be uh the medical community, doctors and nurses. So you have like, if you're on a trauma team, you have the doctor leading it, and then you have um, nurses who have specific roles, you know, during that code or or, or whatever. Um, same thing in the SEAL community. The officer enlisted ratio is about one to three. So you have one officer for every three enlisted guys. SEAL platoon, traditionally 16 guys, two to three officers, the rest enlisted guys. Uh, and so I was an officer. I went through SEAL training uh, as a young ensign, newly commissioned. Uh, I continued on in my service. I, I now hold the rank of lieutenant commander. Uh, so part of my role is mission planning. Um, and it's, a, it's a leadership role. And so, uh, and it, on the ground, it doesn't matter that much, right? Like every seal shoots, every seal jumps, every seal dives, you know, you're right there, uh, in the stack with everybody else. Um, so it's not like you're sitting back in the talk, the tactical operations center, you know, drinking coffee, like while the boys go out and kick down the door. But it certainly, and it's particularly the culture of the SEAL teams is that officers lead from the front and that they're, <laughs> they're deeply involved. In fact, it's the only way to earn the respect of the guys because right. it's a very non-hierarchical culture. It's a very flat culture. So, um, you know, it, unlike traditional military structures, like the guys, you know, they don't, say sir in the same way they don't salute you you know they generally don't salute on seal bases well, and stuff like that so um it's a much more like team of equals kind of approach um but one of the roles of officers is mission planning and so when i think about mission planning i think about the five phases of any mission um uh insertion uh how are we going to start to get there how are we going to uh, infiltration, how are we going to move towards the target? The AO, which is called the actions on the objective, the third phase of any mission. And then if you're doing your job right as an officer, you think about like, how the hell are we going to get off the X? That's called the exfiltration phase. And then finally the extraction. How are we going to get on the bird and go home? And quite often, interestingly enough, the um, insertion, infiltration, exfiltration and extraction components of the mission are far and away the most complicated components of any mission, <laughs> right? Sometimes the stuff we have to do to get to a target uh, is, you know, a halo jump 
or an underwater combat dive on a Traeger on a pure oxygen rebreather, right? Trekking through the jungle. So for me, when I'm thinking about a mission, it's it's usually not as simple as, you know, hey, we're just going to get on the bird and we're going to roll out and go, right? Quite often, it's not that we don't dirt dive the hell out of in practice the actions on the objective, whether that's a reconnaissance, taking a taking photographs, whether that's hitting a house and trying to grab an HVT. We, we go through those that training and, and that practice a lot, but we just as often have to prepare and then from a leadership perspective, think about those other components of the mission. And then the final thing that I'll say about that is then there's this comms architecture, communications architecture that sits on top of the entire mission and makes it work. So as, as an officer, quite often when I'm first getting on the bird or the truck or, uh, you know, donning the Drager apparatus or on the boat or on the submarine to be at the beginning phase of any mission, I'm thinking about like all of the incredible responsibilities in terms of the entire horizon of the mission from getting in safely to the actions to time on target, how long we spend in the, on the actual target, on the actual objective, um, to getting out and then communicating both internally within the team and externally to all of these other assets simultaneously. So, uh, the zero dark 30 is, you know, you see everybody creeping through the compound and shooting the bad guys. Uh, but the reality is that the modern day battle space is incredibly complicated and complex. And Mm. one small example might be, you know, you, uh, on a say you're on a mission in Afghanistan and you have your platoon and you're communicating internally um, with your commu- with your platoon, but you also might be communicating separately on a different channel externally and often on missions like I'll have headsets on with multiple channels, so I'll be listening to the internal uh, platoon team communication in my right ear, but in my left ear I'll be listening to um, the uh, the overhead assets, the fast movers, which are the the jets who are providing cover for you. You'll be talking back to oh. the tactical operations center, and you might have a JTAC in your platoon who's you know doing a call for fire, who's calling a JDAM, which is a big bomb, right over on some target somewhere else. And just to add to the complexity of the picture, like these are not all Americans. Right. Like if you listen to radio traffic on a mission in in Afghanistan, you might have like an Italian JTAC controller talking to a NATO French jet with a um, Polish QRF quick reaction force on standby and an American helo. So you have all these crazy accents chattering on the radio all to accomplish one mission. And that's the modern battle space domain, which has gotten incredibly complicated and sophisticated. Have you had situations where, um, the, what do you call it? Exful getting out, uh, getting out. Yes. Yeah. Where exfiltration. You, exfiltration is like, Oh fuck. How are we oh, going to exfiltrate? Totally. Uh, you know, you know what we like to say in, in mission planning? Fuck like, is a military term, by the way, that was a bomb is coming in. I think it was world war two. Really? Yeah, so when a bomb was coming in, so that was intentional. That's not just me being lowbrow. Yeah, that I That was legit. Yeah, that's why I said it. <laughs> that's that's why totally I, that's why, why I said, I said it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds like that could yeah. really suck. 
uh, it, it, it can really <laughs> suck. You know, the adage we like to say in mission planning is like, no battle plan survives the first shot. And yeah, right. God, that's true, right? right? So you have all these ideas, which is why, again, from a mission planning perspective, like contingency plans are incredibly important. So you need a primary, a secondary, and a t- often a tertiary extract option. Um, and you got to be able to make like good real-time calls and decisions um, about which one of those you're going to execute because like if you make the wrong call, like people die. Um, and that is an, a grave responsibility when you're 23, 24 years old. It's probably an annoying question, but are there, are there any specific instances that stand out that the exfiltration was a, a special pain in the ass? Hmm. I'd have to... I'd have to think about it or something. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Or something went wrong where it's like, you know, you know, I mean, I guess probably something went wrong. is probably like almost every every time time. you went and did a thing. Every time, (laughs) all the time, every time (laughs) that just sounds cause you're in a foreign land, you know, with a bunch of people that their intention is to kill you rightfully. So, cause you know, your intentions are, you know, it's like, it would, it would only make sense. Um, it's just like, fuck, man. Like, I got lost in the mall when I was, like, six and, you know, shit my pants. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> totally. That, I mean. Totally. Totally. And you're just like, and then it's, you know, and it's night and then, like, the, you know, the GPS isn't working and the and the comms guy can't get, like, a radio sat shot. Like, it all, like, it's always you know and and it's why you have to be like incredibly adaptable and it's also um why it's frankly the reason that special operations community exists the history of the special operations community socom itself is that it came off of a fuck up yeah right uh military term yeah exactly <laughs> oh God! I hope all your podcasts aren't this heavy. Like, how was your afternoon? Dude, like, this, a lot of war, dude. It's so. It's. I find this. I mean, it's just. I don't have the opportunity to access this. You know, my life is freaking building a salad at Erwan and going to yoga and then reading about the power of play. Yeah. My life's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I'm incredibly know, grateful for my bullshit. If, I don't know. Like, if, if you ever need to call for, like, a hot extract at Erewhon, I gotcha. I'll send the kilo in. I'll I think that stuff's in. important, man. There's a book called Paradise Made in Hell that I'm sh- I bet you're familiar with that no, one. You ever uh, heard of that one? Uh, uh, so, it's all, so it's all about um, kind of this, but how going through these really... I hope I'm not harsh in your mellow before your big trip, by the way. I really appreciate you like going into all this stuff. Um, you know, this is like... No way. Oh, good. Perfect. perfect good. Um, but so Paradise Made in Hell is uh, a book about different people's experiences where they went through uh, like like traumatic in quotations experiences that happened to be the most valuable experiences, experiences of their life and they finally felt brotherhood and they felt or sisterhood or whatever and they finally feel that connection and what it feels to like really like viscerally live you know in those moments because i'd imagine in that situation like you checking how many notifications you have on your instagram would have so little relevance in that situation. Right. Whereas when they're here by the, you know, the river and they're the weed whacker going, it's like, I'll take a look at my Instagram, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. But I mean, don't you think that's part of the reason like it's incumbent upon us if we want to live fully robust lives is to 
to challenge our comfort zone because it gives us this great perspective yeah. on like what matters, like what shit actually matters. Yeah. It's being able, it's like psychedelics. Do you have experience with psychedelics or is it something you talk about or whatever? I'm happy to talk yeah, about yeah. it. Um, I'm happy to talk about my non-experience. Let yeah, me yeah. pontificate about something I, I know okay, nothing about. Never, that's, it, that's interesting. But yeah, be, well, the truth is experience. I've never done any drugs. I am oh, uh, from Santa Cruz. Alcohol? And have ne- no, that is true. I have. Oof, I alcohol have is one of the most insidious drugs. It is. No, if no, we no, don't put alcohol on the drug table, that's I, like, I, I guess what, I, are we, what are we saying here? I got, I get chastised all the time for making that shorthand mistake and i deserve to be chastised for it i have never it's a done, hell of a drug alcohol <laughs> i have never done any illicit drugs okay. um and i've never even smoked pot which i know makes me like the oddest of odd santa cruz ducks yeah right barely santa like, cruz venice yeah i i know they should that's like good. exile me right now right no, like, good. We need but it. the truth is I've, I've had a security clearance since i was 17 right. years old and like look oh my god probably going to start another maternal fight here, but like, look, my mom smokes enough pot for the whole family. <laughs> like good. it's fine. Like, I think there's something to that idea actually. It, it's, it's not a judgment. But so yeah. that's, so that's the thing. And we can, we can wrap up here in Jimmy, but the, um, I think that that's a big thing with people that do use a lot of like psychoactive stuff, whatever, you know, fill in the blank thing, psilocybin, LSD. Um, but as, as being competent or fluent between both worlds, mm. You know, so if all, if you're like psych, I was talking to, uh, do you know Neil Strauss? Of course, right? I know yeah, him quite game. well. Oh, yeah. good, perfect. Yeah. So I was just, just um, did a recording thing with him like like three days ago. Great. And this is one of the things that, that he, barring from him, is like sometimes the plant medicine people can only hang out with the other plant medicine oh, people. Right, right, right. You know, because they're like, they've, they've pulled the veil back and it's yeah. like, it's like, yeah. no, shut up. Yeah. You know, it's like, totally. how do you, how do you be bilingual between that? Like yeah. that's the real value. Yeah. Yes, I'd imagine it's similar with your experiences. I think so. No, I think so. Absolutely. Um, And I've always thought like that part of, I mean, you know, in my civilian life, like um, a storyteller and um, a filmmaker and I'm a war correspondent. And I've always thought that like part of my job was, uh, and especially because I often focus on conflict and national security issues, I've always thought that like part of my job was to help explain you know, frankly, this like foreign, often unnavigable, scary world of, of war and conflict and war and peace, um, you know, to an audience back here and it, so that we can understand these these things that we're engaged in to yeah. kind of unpack them. Yeah, it's like yin and yang. Us hanging out mm-hmm. on the floating library boat dock. It's yeah. pretty in. I'm so glad that <laughs> you're stoked on it. Dude. I really am. Yeah. I've been stoked on it before walking by and being like, they have a floating book. Now I get to know the... I did read the Michael Pollan book, by the way. I had to change your mind. Actually, my dad read it first. Uh, and, and he's like, you got to read this. And then uh, Kyle also recommended it. and Here we are. And I read it. And I thought it was quite excellent. Psychedelics are powerful, man. It's yeah. one of the most powerful emotional, psychological tools I think that we have access to. Yeah. I think consistency is a really powerful tool too. Um, like spending time with yourself and meditation and all that stuff. But as far as like if it was like a like a special ops military type thing, it's like it's like the big bomb. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's the J Dam. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know? So so like I don't think it's necessary all the time, but it's like when you're in that like a deep psychedelic kind of thing where you really like you really truly are 
like merging with you know everything you know like your body disappears and if you start to you know what's it called synesthesia where you start to you know see see colors or or see sounds or what you know all that stuff it's like um it's just a whole nother world man or man like just sign on the bottom line and give yourself a little hell week Get a little help. Well, that's what I was saying. When I see no, when I see people jumping out of a helicopter, like that's what I that's what I see. I'm like, oh, it's the same shit. You know, it's like when you when you like sign up and you're like, okay, we're gonna do this ayahuasca ceremony, and you like drink the cup. Yeah, it's like you're literally stepping out of the plane. Yeah. Right, so the plane's what you know. You're on this ground. You're like, yeah. okay, I get. I'm drinking my mate. You know, yeah, like yeah. I'm reading my book, and you're like, okay, do you want to step out and like yeah. see what that is? Like, okay, boy. <laughs> but I think there's different avenues to it. Right. I don't think it needs to be ayahuasca. You know, I think it can be. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, even on a very literal interpretation of of hallucinating, I suspect that like there's some neurochemical process that's happening that's creating hallucin nations right like whether it's because i didn't sleep for seven days right it was like running around in hell week or whether it's because we like fast forwarded it because we did psilocybin it's like probably the same neurochemical process would arguably we get some of the same benefits out of it yeah i was reading about that with um what is it called when they're doing like the g-force training where you're like strapped in and spinning around real fast apparently people end up um it's like regular for people to get hallucinations from those experiences. I think, I mean, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Some shit that I read. Um, but I think it's, I mean, that's an interesting thing with like the kind of resistance that culturally you know, there's taboo around eating the, the mushroom or the, you know, whatever the thing is, but we do all these other kinds of hallucinations. <laughs> sort of like, my, like, I've never done any drugs. Like, right, let's go get a tequila. Life is a yeah. drug. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> right. Anyways, thanks for doing this, man. This is really cool. This is amazing. Fucking yeah, really, uh, really appreciate yeah, getting. Yeah, uh, and thanks for the the session. That was really wonderful. Oh, getting the the flying stuff. Loved oh, we can it. do more. Yeah, let's yeah, do more, man. It's a good it. thing. Um, how do people learn more about your stuff? What's like the best access point for um, for you? Uh, I got a website, kajlarson.com. Needs a little updating. Uh, all the social channels. I do all that. Um, and you know, I always have new content coming out um cool. i got some i'm working on a, a big project right now as well so that'll be out uh sometime next year new new docuseries so sweet is there like a go-to docu something or some type of like piece of content that you're especially proud of uh you know the funny part about this content creation business is like you can only remember the last thing you did right yeah, you're right. only as good as the last thing you did right. uh i'm really proud of some of the work i i did at Vice as a correspondent for the HBO show. I was one of the, um, I was the only journalist uh, in northern Nigeria in the fight against Boko Haram. Uh, so I was able to sneak in to northern Nigeria to a place called Maduguri in Borno State, which is where all the fighting was going on, and and show some stuff that nobody else had been able to see. Interview Boko Haram commanders. Uh, so I'm super proud of that. And um, yeah, uh, you know, I got a little something. For everything, if you're into social justice and criminal justice, I, I got a couple serious documentaries um, about the prison system. Um, you know, I even produced that show Lock Up. Like, so occasionally people hmm. will be like, it, it's like a show that now it's on Netflix, I think, and was originally on MSNBC for like 17 seasons. But people are always telling me like, they're like, oh, I was watching TV Saturday night, I fell asleep, and then I like heard your voice, like there you were, like in in some prison or something. So that's cool. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I'm into that, and uh, I actually just did a, I, I just did a, a, a movie like 
all kinds of stuff, you know. Like, it's good, man. I, I, I pimp it on the gram and on the Facebook and the the, t- the Twittering, less Twittering. Actually, no Twitter really. Twitter stuff. I don't believe in it. Yeah, I don't I love it. I think it's I think it's I think it's bad for ever us. since they ever since they switched over. Well, I think a lot of things are bad for us in the in the social media world. But ever since they switched it off of being 140 characters, I'm like, all right, I'm over it. I thought it was cool where it was forcing you into like creating like a little. Yeah, you know, I like I like the confinement place now oh yeah that's, that's my it. real i don't pay enough attention to, to, to know yeah there's a mike catherwood or you met him before mm-hmm. oh he's dope he's uh he does he co-hosts the dr drew something oh i love show drew. and Drew's all that a friend stuff. of mine yeah we were friends from cnn yeah oh perfect yeah yeah sweet so mike you got to meet mike he's rad he lives nearby here as well um but he was saying he had some really sage advice. He said, Instagram is from a boner and then Twitter is from a, from a mind. Yeah. More so <laughs> <laughs> for preview. like his dirty mind. Like, yeah, like, know, whatever. I just, like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I think it's, uh, in the immortal words of John Stewart, I think it's hurting America. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. For another conversation. Thank you, dude. Thank fucking you, man. A, fucking appreciate it. That was great. That was really... Thanks for coming over. Uh, yeah. Now we can geek out about motorcycles. Here we go. Out to the bikes. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, we got a couple things to help support that body of yours, one of which is the Align Band that people have been really loving, which I'm super grateful for. Um, it is a heavy-duty resistance band. comes along with a door anchor, traveling case, and then a online video guide on how to use that thing. It's my absolute go-to travel tool. I've got it hanging literally from my door right beside me now. Um, um, use it regularly, use it with clients. Uh, it can be found at alignpodcast.com slash gear uh, on Amazon. And you can also find it at Align Band on Instagram. Um, also, we finally did it. We created the Align Method online program, which focuses on unwinding the patterns of staring into technology, essentially. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, rolled forward spine, kind of like just that hunchy posture thing that um, modern world is is stricken by uh, gets into how to align your physical body. So self-care, joint by joint, from ankle to knee to hip to spine to head to neck, etc. Really good stuff. Also gets into lifestyle, um, gets into morning routines, nighttime routines, how to effectively handstand, how to move on the ground. Um, people have been loving that. Thank you all for grabbing it, the ones that have. And if people have any questions about that, you can reach out at Align Podcast on Instagram. I'm happy to support. All right. Thank you, guys. Enjoy your day. Thanks for joining you. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for reviews on iTunes. That's it. Pow.